Operation Confidence proudly presents America's Invisible Heroes Talk Radio Show. Tune in weekly on Sundays from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Pacific Time with your hosts, Consuela Mackey, co-hosts, Air Force veteran Matt Davidson, announcers Taylor Marcella and Brooke Gadesi, U.S. Army veteran and entertainment segment host Charles Whitehead, U.S. Army veteran and Strategies for Hope segment host Dr. Kathy Cash, U.S. Army veteran and Lifeline for Women Veterans segment host Martha Elena Varela, National Director of Faith Services, Chaplain and Veterans in Recovery segment host Anthony Akinpora, and U.S. Air Force veteran and Incarcerated to Success segment host Kevin Lewandowski. For more information or to be a guest on our show, email info at operationconfidence.org. Operation Confidence is a grassroots nonprofit. The organization's mission is to provide stable housing for veterans who have experienced homelessness, as well as providing a wide range of supportive services. To help accomplish our goal, a successful landowner has donated land for the project, a world-renowned architect has offered to design the houses, and construction classes from the local community colleges will take part in building the houses. Your support and donations are needed. To get involved, please visit our website at www.operationconfidence.org or email info at operationconfidence.com. Okay, so welcome everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Americans Invisible Heroes. This show is dedicated to our veterans and their families. Yes, I'm your host, Consuela Mackey of the grassroots nonprofit organization called Operation Confidence. No, I'm not a veteran, but my heart goes out to our American heroes, especially those who have a disability and may have experienced homelessness. For those who are new to the show, American Invisible Heroes will establish to provide a platform for our veterans and their families, and also be able to share their accomplishments, their heartfelt stories, experiences, resources, and challenges. Now, board member and announcer Taylor Marcella will introduce our co-host for today. Today we have U.S. Army Reserve veteran Charles Whitehead, who is a board member, co-host, and entertainer. We have U.S. Army Reserve veteran Martha Varela, advisory board member and lifeline for women's veterans. Uh, we have U.S. Army Major General Anthony Smith Sr. and his monthly segment called Can't Keep a Good Man Down. We have Anne Monahue with her bi-monthly segment, The Rosie's Movement. And lastly, but not least, U.S. Navy veteran Calvin Poole with his monthly segment, Blinded Veterans Helping Blinded Veterans. Okay. So, this on show. All right, I'm getting ready to tell you about uh, Martha Varela, who's been on emergency leave for a few months. Martha is an Operation Confidence is on the Operation Confidence Advisory Board and the Executive Director of Paralyzed Veterans of America, California Chapter, which I am a board member. She's an educator, community advocate, and an entrepreneur with a passion for social justice and human rights. Martha has focused more than 20 years of her nonprofit work experience in the inner city communities of St. Paul and Minneapolis, 
Minnesota, and Los Angeles. She's developed and managed various leadership development programs, academic and career enrichment programs, and health and life skill development programs. Martha is also a youth basketball coach and has coached for the Minnesota State High School League, Parks and Recreation, Boys and Girls Club, and her local Booster Athletic Club. Martha also has an extensive network of community resources and tirelessly advocates for the advocates for the basic needs of others, including military vets. Martha receives her undergraduate degree from the University of Minnesota, where she independently designed, designed an in, interdepartmental bachelor of science degree in social work, youth studies, and multicultural studies. Martha was very active in her university community where she worked for the Office of Multicultural and Academic Affairs. The President's Chicano Latin Attendance Advisory Board, the Chicano Latin Learning Center's El Puente Mentor Program, Student Parent Help Center, and the Minnesota Women's Center. Jeez. Take it away, Dang, Martha. you could have cut that. I'm like, Hello, know. everyone. Thank you for that. You, you see me get startled? I didn't. You should have just said what you didn't do, you know? <laughs> Well, I didn't take a break, which I'm doing now. So thank you guys for that. And yes, it's good to be back. I'm a little uh, discombobulated. It's been a while. I took some time off to take care of some family stuff, good stuff with my, my parents. I was traveling for a while. And yeah. as you heard, I have completed a full my first full year at PVA California chapter. So I have to say thank you to the group yeah. because you guys were so instrumental in introducing me to Paralyzed Veterans of America California chapter, which I had no idea who they were. Charles and I have had this conversation multiple times. We've heard of them, but we never seen them, uh, probably on a commercial here and there. So I am definitely doing my part to try to help um, get the PVA a lot more connected into the Don't community. leave me out. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> and that's how we were able to do make that connection through this collaboration, which is exactly, uh, you know, speaks to that same collaborative effort where one person knows someone else over here and knows another person over there, but continues to collaborate and work one, with one another. That's right? what so, we're doing. That's exactly so, right. Thank you for that. Uh -huh. And and also just to kind of speak to Anthony really quickly too about your comment about housing. Um, it's kind of how I got my start with veterans and in housing. Um, I had no clue that housing was actually such a big need. I think you're talking um, about Calvin. Calvin. No, no, no. Um, because Anthony had mentioned earlier something oh, about housing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and that was kind of how I got my start too, not realizing how um how how important housing was to our veterans. I had no clue um that it was such a big issue. So working together with Consuela around the housing project and housing efforts, I do do a lot of stuff sort of behind the scenes for Operation Confidence with housing. And so it's kind of a um build on what I've kind of done kind of shortly after I arrived to Los Angeles and in particular with the veteran community, but, you know, not so much with PVA as we do a lot more of the uh, sports and recreation. So I might have to pick your brain about some of that stuff too, as we're looking to plan some events and have Consuela and, and the group um, come and participate. We're, we just got off the horn with the VA uh, last week about planning an adaptive sports festival of some sort in our parking lot. Um, oh, our sports yeah, and our sports director passed away in, in the summer of last year. So I would like to do something in his honor um, mm -hmm. and make it yearly. And then any sort of proceeds that we make 
we donate a portion to go to his young son um, and maybe some sort of an educational scholarship of some sort. So big things are happening. I just, I haven't uh, been too far away, but I'm glad to be back and and become uh, more more on the monthly maybe co-host and right, get, mm-hmm. get some women to come in and and uh, give some testimony. So exactly happy to see you guys all today. Okay, so you got some information to share. It's good to see you back. Yes, <laughs> Charles. Okay, so I'm going to talk about bone stress injuries are common for females, um, female military and or the reserves, I would say. So this is a study that was done. It looks by looks like several doctors here. So a fatigue bone stress injury occurs when abnormal stress, usually in the form of multiple stress, stress or frequent repetition of otherwise normal stress is exerted on a bone with normal elastic resistance, but unaccustomed to the action. A typical patient history for fatigue bone stress injuries includes a rapid increase or alteration in physical loading magnitude and or intensity of physical activity as part of a training program. Under increased physical load, bone remodeling accelerates, resulting in microfractures. Under increased physical load, bone remodeling accelerates, resulting in, oh, I read that, I'm sorry. To prevent these from co coalescing into macroscopic fractures and to give them enough time to heal, adequate rest is required because diagnosing bone stress injuries by clinical history and examination is difficult. Imaging methods typically are needed to help reach an accurate diagnosis and decide on treatment in case of a strong clinical suspicion. Fatigue injuries of the lower extremities reportedly occur in athlete populations and among the military, especially during the beginning of military service. In reports on training programs with the main focus on running, the occurrence of such injuries have ranged from 10% to 50%, depending on the type of sport, gender, and imaging methods used. Several studies have shown MRI has high sensitivity and specific specificity for detecting bone injuries. Female gender generally is considered a high risk factor for bone stress injuries. In addition, the anatomic location of these injuries varies by gender. It previously was reported MRI diagnosed bone stress injuries of the pelvis and femoral neck are substantially more common among female recruits than male recruits. The objectives of this limited perspective study were to assess the one, the occurrence, the two, the prognosis, three, the anatomic distribution, four, symptoms, and five, association between symptoms and grades of bone stress injuries to the pelvis, femur, and tibia, and female elite military trainees. The doctors prospectively found 10 female trainees of the reserve officer course at the Central Military Hospital who entered service in 2000. Their age ranges were from 19 to 25 years old. All 10 subjects were examined by an orthopedic surgeon at the beginning, once during, and at the end of the course. After each clinical examination, the women underwent MRI of the pelvis and lower extremities. The histories and examination by the orthopedic surgeon were repeated at six-week intervals. The history included the presence, intensity, and location of pain and the examination, which included palpitation and estimation of the range of movement of the knee, the hip, and the ankle. 
Any other observations considered relevant for the study were also recorded. Now, I would add also that those boots that they used to use, and for those of us who had joined um, in the 80s and 90s before they shifted to the more um, sort of the, the boots that moved, right? We had um, the all leather boots. And those things were like made absolutely no sense on why we were using them. And this interestingly is what happened to me. So I have had a bone, a stress fracture in my right foot at the top of my foot um, from the boots and the laces sort of right underneath and the pressure that it was causing from the repeated movement of running. So again, I totally understand why you'd want to run in some sort of su supportive uh, footwear of some sort, but something like too supportive maybe or not uh, that doesn't give in some way was causing lots of injuries to both men and women. So this is interesting to read because it's probably showing um, that the women may be more prone to some of those injuries. And for me, um, number one, it was misdiagnosed and I just kind of kept kept it moving as they tell you, right? So over the years now, that bone stress fracture never healed correctly. And my body naturally shifted its gait to the left side. So now I have a, a bone on bone condition in my hip. So this is so interesting. I'm actually gonna have to use some of this language in my service connection uh, fight because I'm now on appeal number two. And I wanna make sure that my third and final, um, I guess, appeal that's part of this long and drawn out process kind of like unemployment is, um, includes some of this language because it's interesting that they know this, <laughs> but yet they deny you know people who are going through the process. And for me, I was in the military at 18 years old. So I joined actually when I was 17. Who knew? I mean, I'm I'm 50 years old and I have a hip problem. So for the last year and a half specifically, my condition has been getting worse. So I've been doing all of this background research on my own because of course they're not going to tell you. And it wasn't until um, kind of going to a chiropractor back in Minnesota who told me this is exactly what it's from. Because again, I've never been in a car accident. Um, with, you know, injuries. I've never had like, you know, anything, thank God I've never been uh, assaulted or I haven't been thrown off a building. I haven't been hit by a car. I mean, all anything that would warrant the condition of my left hip at my age. So it's interesting how um, <laughs> you read stuff like this and it's like, they know about it. Maybe I should try to reach out to some of these doctors, but anyway, um, a lot more prevalent than you think, and as the body, you know, like I said, to have been misdiagnosed, I think was the first problem for me and then not getting the proper treatment. So over the years, it just kind of did what it wanted to. And now I'm, I'm looking at hip surgery, June 14th. So All right. have you scheduled it? I have, and I had my oh, MRI okay. last week. Um, yeah. So again, kind of tying into part of what I was explaining when I first joined on is that, you know, I've been dealing with some of my own health issues and really wanting this part of the service connection process to be over with kind of like Charles, you know, and your specific, you know, having to wait uh, as long as you have, I'm trying to avoid, you know, uh, a 10 year mark or having to go see the judge. So I really got to get this last and final 
uh, response letter in um, with all of my guns loaded. Um, so this will be good. Thank you, Connie, so much for finding this article because this is very interesting for me. I can look at some of the uh, the research a little bit more in detail, kind of see what what else is in there because I'm going to have to copy some of this language and say, you know that, <laughs> did you know? And I could actually kind of quote maybe some of these, some of this research if there's, you know, and need to, but there you go. Yeah, you know, the, the sad part about it, you know, I mean, when you first talked about those boots, we know those boots were made to step in mud, water, around snakes, whatever, you know, things falling on your foot to save your foot and all, you know, yeah, it was, you know, and then, uh, you know, the part about you being thrown off a building, I don't know how much boots would help you, but, um, you, <laughs> know, you know, but, uh, you know, th those boots were made for just, you know, anything that's, uh, you know, uh, metal heavy or whatever, they were never in, uh, you know, they were never into running. Things. Yeah, well, you know, and then you had to run in them and, and you had to shine them up too, they had to look good. And marching too, I think was the other issue for me because of uh, my my height. So I was in the front. So there's like longer strides and that put more pressure on my foot um, from the top. Those boots were like, to, remember how tight they used to try to oh, get yeah. you to tighten them? Because they were like literally between like shoelace, mm -hmm. the, the eye. I mean, that was all pressure on the top of my foot. Um, and it never healed. I mean, those stress fractures never go away. Just like when you um, misplace or like bruise your rib or pop mm -hmm. your rib out of place, it never, it, it's sort of like, that's how it's always going to be, right? You could cough and sneeze at any time and pop your rib right out of place. You know, it's like those stress fractures, they don't really heal. They kind of just flare up and go away from time to time, depending upon, you know, how much pressure you put on your foot. So, or, you know, for me, where I had my stress fracture um, in my foot. So interesting how there's a lot of research out there, but the process, unfortunately, hasn't made it oh, any yeah, easier. They, the sad part is that they, they know a lot of things, you know, and uh, I mean, for instance, uh, Anthony, you, you had your, your, your legs blown off, right? You know? Oh, right side of my hip. Oh, right. And then you go for disability. And they deny you the first time, no matter what, you know, which is, you know, it's ridiculous. So there's a lot of things that the, the uh, quote unquote uh, VA or the government or whatever, you know, it's a, it's a combination of uh, that, it, you know, it's just, they don't care. It's a, you know, we want to get you in, we want bodies. They, they bring you in and it's a, you know, uh, like cattle herding, bring in the cattle, but then, you know, don't worry about the, uh, once they're all in, we, you know, we deal with that. Yeah, day. there's no room. <laughs> they don't fit. <laughs> so. So, yeah. Well, Thanks, I, did have, I did have a little advantage, though, because they did stick me in a body bag, so. Well, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, <laughs> for you that somebody went to check. You know? <laughs> Crazy, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so anyways, you know. That was an awesome segment. Our next um, co-host is Anne Montague. So Anne is the executive director, founder of the Rosie's Movement. She returned to West Virginia after working in other states and internationally. Anne received two MA degrees without having to finish the BA based on professional level research, writing, and contribution. 
after an MA from Harvard University, she was a partner in a Boston area firm commercializing technologies. She founded a nonprofit based on work with the US Army Corps of Engineers to find technologies to clean and use sediments from navigable waters. She is recognized for good ideas and to work to bring them to reality. Her guest today, um, I don't know if she is able to um, be on the show today, but she is going to speak about Miss Linda Shomo. She is the Rosie's daughter and, and retired from the federal government in Washington. And take it away. Oh, so Zeb, thank you so much. I want to know if Linda is on the phone. I see here iPhone without a visual, but I don't think Linda has been able to join us. Is that right? I don't know who iPhone is there. I so, think iPhone is Calvin. Is it? Okay. All right. So then it's up to me. Um, it's a very, very uh, powerful uh, time that we're in right now with the American Rosie movement because we're getting uh, places and people who've done um, work themselves and been very excited about it, and they hadn't realized that we are trying a national effort to get people to pull together. So one of the things that happened in the last um, couple of months is we got a call from Linda Shomo. I'd already gotten uh, information about her mother, um, and I had had it maybe for a couple of years, but her mother worked in uh, Akron, Ohio, making B-22 bombers and doing other work. And before her mother died, she said to Linda, um, keep our legacy going. So Linda called me recently, and it turns out just by luck, it wasn't planned, we took her to the um, embassy of the Netherlands and uh, uh, Charles can show some pictures here, not the embassy, but the home of the ambassador on April 6th. Now that home was completely decorated with tulips because that's what, of course, the Dutch are famous for. So um, turns out that we had an ally who was there that night that I'd known for since uh, 2016, I think. And um, his name is Hugo Kiesing. And he said, Anne, I want to remind you that we should be naming a tulip for Rosie the Riveters. So he arranged for Linda to meet with the attache who is in charge of agriculture for um, essentially agricultural business and cultural issues um, for the embassy. So why don't you show the pictures and then I'll tell that story, if you will, there, Charles. Okay, here. Okay. Uh, let's start with the one on the left, if you can. Can you enlarge it? If not, we'll... Uh, hold on a second, let me do okay. this. I'm gonna stop my share. Give me a while, while he's doing that, um, at the uh, home of the ambassador there, there were, I'm going to guess, somewhere around 250 people. Because I'm disabled, I was in a separate room, and I was able to take pictures of people, you know, looking at the flowers. So I have many, many wonderful photos. But the photo on the left there, I don't know if you can pull it up any bigger. Yeah, give me a second. It's coming now. Okay. 
Um, that's just basically pretty much what that place looked like. It was incredibly beautiful. There must have been thousands of tulips and other flowers there. Now, the, the other piece of this that's been very consistent since 2015 is we have, um, we have hosted Allied Nations to thank American Roses, but none had hosted us until we met the people of the Embassy of the Netherlands in 2015. So I guess we've been to eight or 10 events now. That's Linda in the middle there, the blonde. I'm not sure who she's talking with. It looks like it's a military attache, but I'm not sure. But the, the beauty of that building and uh, is just so apparent there. Now, without planning it, it turns out she's the um, president of the garden club of a small town called Elkins, West Virginia. And um, she had already arranged to have a, essentially a, a new park that will have in it a dedicated, um, I guess you would call it a monument to Rosie the Riveters. And now they're the Embassy of the Netherlands working with us and with Linda to name a tulip for Rosie the Riveters. Now in that park, maybe you can pull up that picture too. The, the park is just in planning stages. I have the car, okay. It's, uh, I believe it was the one I, on the right. I have yeah. it. Anyway, in that park, um, you see it's near a highway and we're talking about a small town now. Um, they are having a monument for gold star mothers. That means mothers who've lost their children in the military. And then somewhere in that park will be a monument that is um, going to be quite expensive, but we'll help her find the money. And um, in addition to that, the people there in that community have already come forward with three different roses that we didn't even know about um, in our own state here. So um, the, the point is that People are doing projects to keep this image uh, and the, the legacy of Rosie's going. And the legacy is to pull together, to do highest quality work, to do it in a spirit of cooperation, and uh, essentially to show that we not only are really, really blessed with our freedom, but we are going to be use, using it wisely. There was a final picture there, I think, I'm not sure, was there there? Um, that's when we first came in the entryway as her husband on the, the right there. He worked in security in DC for 30 some years. Of course, that's me in the center. And then that's Linda. She worked for the CIA for 30 some years. So they know Washington really well. And I think they're going to be very good allies to help us make different connections that we've not made. She's very concerned about veterans as we are. And uh, essentially, veterans are part of our mission statement. And um, so I'm sorry, I really don't know what happened. I kind of think that they may have had a windstorm up there in that part of the state because it is frequent that they don't have Wi-Fi and other um, IT connection. So um, now let me just quickly say that next week, we're going to be interviewing a woman from that area. I believe she's 98. And then um, 
the next week I will be presenting about how my mother was, who was a Rosie, has inspired the American Rosie movement. So we have numerous things coming up. And as long as we're welcome with you all, we're just thrilled to be part of it. And thank you all so very much, and especially Connie, for being so welcoming. Stay <coughs> a really important part of the story of not only World War II, but these women have lived over the century that has seen more change than any other century in the history of the human family. And so we need to tap them. They're very, very uh, interested uh, in veterans. And the whole time they worked on the home front, whatever they did, their job was to save lives and bring the boys home. So thank you again. And um, I'm, we'll, I'll report back to Connie about what happened to Linda today, but I just think she lost her connection because here in West Virginia, um, Wi-Fi is a, a real problem. We're probably bottom of the list in America for having good Wi-Fi connections. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, any questions? Um, Nobody? No. All right. Thank you. Good information, Ann. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, I guess we'll uh, move right along to uh, um, Calvin Poole. So Dr. Donald B. Hooks is the guest of uh, U.S. Navy veteran Calvin Poole. He's the past president of the Tennessee Regional Group of the Blinded Veteran Association, or the BVA. Currently the secretary Treasury for the Treasurer for the Tennessee Regional Group of the BBA and Regional BBA Ambassador. He is also the chairman of the BBA for the Golden Age Game and a purpose is blind and 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 purpose is blinded veterans helping blind and blinding veterans. Navy Vet Pool is also a America Invest Invisible Hero investigative. Yeah, I have changed the name. He's an AIA segment host. He's a blinded veterans helping blinded veterans. Dr. Hooks is a visual impairment service team coordinator with the over 11 years of personal and professional experience in computer-assisted technology and adaptive living skills. Experience that he has is internship and postdoctoral fellowship in blind rehab therapy at Edwards Hines Jr. VA Hines in, in Hines, Illinois. He's currently the VST coordinator at Lubbock VA Clinic, Amarillo VA Healthcare System. He's proficient with devices and software specifically designed for the blind and visually impaired. Uh, Lubbock VA Clinic, Amarillo VA Care System, <coughs> uh, you know, all of these are places. Uh, the VA Healthcare System, assistive technology and adaptive living skills. He's uh, basically, you know, he's uh, good with all this stuff. His experiences uh, also includes internship and postdoctoral fed fellowship and blind rehab therapy at Edward Hines Jr. VA. Did I read that? Okay, if I didn't read it again. VA in Hines, Illinois. He's currently, okay, yeah. All right, I'm just gonna say this. Uh, he's performed assets, assessments with visually impaired veterans using the model of lifetime care coordination uh, based on the clinical and psychosocial needs of each veteran to determine the degree of intervention. He adjusts the veteran's needs to help determine and refer to the type and intensity of services they need. He's an employee. Employee interventions are unusual motivational techniques and coordinated treatment with other professionals to achieve 
outcomes of the rehab plan based on veterans' needs and to adjust treatment plans. And uh, also, he update and uh, their job is to his, his job is update and maintain the uh, VIS roster to include all low vision and legally blind veterans enrolled at a given VA facility. And also, his, his job is to provide outreach and education to non-VA agencies and non-VA medical facility via brochures and other educational materials about veterans counseling and family information, just to name a few. It's like Martha. Well, I just tell you what he doesn't do, huh? Okay. It all stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and take it away, Calvin and Dr. Hooks. Well, thanks again, Charles, and thanks for mm -hmm. Connie and everybody, your staff there, for allowing us to have this another segment of the uh, blinded veterans helping blinded veterans. For our purposes, for our purposes to try to communicate around the country to other blinded veterans to make them aware of the opportunities that they may have uh, as far as file, helping them filing for their well-deserved benefits and as well helping them get involved in uh, blind rehab programs. The VA medical centers have um, 13 different blind rehab centers around the country where blinded and low vision veterans can go and receive um, help in assistive technology, uh, manual skills, living skills, and mobility training. Um, in addition to that, the I was listening earlier to the first segment host concerning adaptive sports. Well, the Blinded Veteran Association does have a, a, a have an adaptive sports component called Team BVA, and I would love to discuss with you in the future some opportunity for our Blinded Veteran to take part in some of your programs. That'd be great. But, but, but for now, I want to introduce uh, a fellow member of the Tennessee Regional Blinded Veterans Association and a hometown young man that grew up here in Memphis. And uh, Donald Hooks is the VIST coordinator, which stands for Visual Impairment Service Team. And I'll let him explain to his uh, many duties and responsibility. So, Don, you can take it away. Thank you. Welcome, sir. Good afternoon, everyone. First, I want to say I am not a doctor. Okay. <laughs> All your credits, you might, you should be. <laughs> well, uh, I want to make sure that's given to get the right information because I, I know. Talk, I know. Especially since it's being recorded. And I don't know who's what? He's a doctor? No, absolutely not. But I might as well have been. <laughs> I have four degrees, uh, computer engineering technology, biomedical engineering technology, psychology, and a master's in vi visual rehabilitation teacher. Um, that's a lot of stuff. A lot of names. doctor. Yeah, but I'm not. But uh, <laughs> I work with plenty of doctors. Uh, first of all, I'd like to tell you a little bit of background about myself. I joined the military when I was 17 years old. My mom had to sign me in. I decided to go into be a Navy, and and what I did when I was in the Navy, I was a medical corpsman. So that pretty much I they used to call me Doc. They call all the medical corpsmen in the Navy Docs. Anyone did not know that. So responsibility mm -hmm. that is pretty pretty much taking care of the medical needs. Uh, we used to glorify nurse, if you want to say, because we pretty much we have a lot of things. And after the military, of course, I uh, had a visual impairment at the time. I did not know I did. Uh, uh, when I got out, I was pretty much legally blind. 
and I wasn't wow. ready to go back in. But I uh, wanted to continue with my education. Um, you know, computer engineering was uh, in technology, and then uh, biomedical was saying to work on medical equipment, stuff like that. Then I uh, got married, got divorced. Uh, was an electrician, did a lot of different things. Uh, from that point, I went decided to go back to school. Uh, did not know that I had a, a not dealing with the vision loss and go through anxiety and depressions and stuff like that because you don't know what's going on that you can't maintain. But I, because uh, well, I was a veteran and um, I started getting an eye exam and they said, you have a catastrophic disease. I said, what the heck that means? That means that you're entitled to some of the benefits the military gives, like uh, not paying for copay and stuff like that. Um, but I sat my first uh, experience getting accepted into um, the blind rehab was in Birmingham. Now, I want to tell you, I wasn't speed to be a nurse, nurse nephesis. That was my goal. But uh, one day the doctor said, well, you, and I was getting upset because I was looking at the prescription glasses I had. I said, I can't see the dots on the eye or the, the T of the cross. By not knowing that, you know, I has has trachoma. Trachoma means you have spotting blindness in the eye. But anyway, moving forward, I uh, got blind rehab. I learned about all the different things like Kevin mentioned before about, um, I'm sorry, Christian just popped up. I know what but uh, I'll, you know, uh, Computer engineering technology, I mean, excuse me, strength uh, software well, for a second. Manual skills, orientation mobility, um, living skills, and computer accessibility. Now, when I saw that, because of my vision loss, I'm seeing people totally blind being supervisors and instructors. I said, well, that's the field I want to go into because I want to teach other blind veterans, such as myself. Uh, and give that knowledge out. So I had to go back to get my degree and swap my major from uh, being a nurse into um, psychology because I didn't know what else to do. But I, when I did that, then I found out to go to the Western Michigan where I got my degree in visual rehabilitation teaching. Now, as of this, I have a lot of blind veterans, low vision veterans, because I'm pretty much a case manager in the um, Love it or Texas area, they call it the West Texas, West Central Texas, pretty much the whole state of Texas. But I really focus on the panhandle of Texas, including Lubbock, Amarillo, Big Springs, uh, Midland. Uh, heck, I don't have the names, I've never heard of Clovis, the Air Force Base out there, uh, everything in the panhandle, and uh, pretty much do a lot of things like that giving them help as far as getting to a blind rehab center, like some places I've been to. Also sharing my experience, strength and hope with them where they can see that because you have visual impairment, does not mean your life doesn't stop. Uh, I really enjoy what I do. I also like to give testimony. 